Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you, everybody. Wow. What a welcome. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and happy Halloween. Welcome, everyone, to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we get into the episode, I want to say a huge shout out to my last guest, Sarah Gulliher Bradford, a.k.a. S.J. Childs. It was amazing as the feedback I got, not only from the autism community, but also from parents and so forth. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, I encourage you to check it out at the conclusion of this episode. So that being said, welcome to episode 97. We're getting closer, folks. We have a very spooktacular episode for you today. We have on the show musician, writer, and film director, Tom McLaughlin. We are going to be talking about his incredible journey through Hollywood. He tells us some behind-the-scenes stories and takes us through the ups and downs of creating one of the staples in the horror slasher genre, Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. This is a very in-depth interview, so let's just go ahead and get right on into it. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from Burbank, California, musician, writer, and director, and one of the true masters of horror, Tom McLaughlin. Tom, hello. Welcome to the Derek DeVall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Well, we've been going through this. Um, I mean, yeah, it's still, I guess, basically summer out here, but we've had this heat wave that's been happening for, God, I, I want to say two months, where every time we think, well, okay, it, it's it's got to end. I mean, we only get things in spurts, but this thing has been going on for months. It's been very bizarre. So, uh, yes, it's continuing to be, you know, usually in the 90s um, and uh, figuring it's got it's got to snap soon. But then again, <laughs> about God, how long has it been? I think it's been like 30 years ago I did a uh, miniseries called The Fire Next Time on global warming. Mm-hmm. And back then we were tired predicting literally these years, you know, past, you know, like 2020 and uh, what was going on. And although a lot of the tricks and gadgets and gadgets that we can, came up for that people were using to sort of combat the heat and safety and all that um, haven't happened yet, 
certainly the heat has uh, has the global warming effect, I think. So uh, where are you based out of, just out of curiosity? I'm in Burbank, California, uh, right, you know, over the hill from Hollywood, which I was for five years and, you know, lovely little apartment in the Hollywood Tower, haunted, which, of course, was one of the big drawing factors for me. Um, nice. Wanted to live in that place ever since I was uh, a kid, teenager up the street. And I had first moved out of my parents' home in Culver City and moved into Hollywood. So the tower was someplace that I thought, I got to get there and see if I can uh, have any sort of encounters because that's been a huge, huge obsession of my life is finding out what's on the other side because it just fascinates me. So I start my interviews off with the same way, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Wow. Um, well, we're still navigating it. You know, it's like every time I think, you know, everything is starting to go back to normal, then suddenly there'll be some something where it's like, no, no, that, you know, restriction is still enforced. For me, I went into a kind of a deep depression for the first couple months because those of us in this wonderful business of show, it's all about, you know, the phone ringing or the texts or emails or something where something's going on and, you know, you need to get, you know, either to somebody's office or send in this material or whatever. And then suddenly, obviously, everything came to a halt. So I had just moved into this house in Burbank and I thought, okay, well, I can either sit here and be depressed or start to be as proactive as I could to at least let people know I am not dead. I mean, our, our band had to stop performing. You know, we had uh, a tour of the Southwest that we were about to do, finishing half of an album. All of that came to a halt. By the end of the two years, the band basically fell apart because some of the guys being older, like myself, um, they kind of bought into the fact that, you know, we're a little too old for this. Me, I just formed two, two more bands uh, and am continuing to do that. So. You know, COVID really kind of stopped a lot of things, but gave me an opportunity to do more writing, uh, do a lot of podcasts, um, you know, just really kind of focus on, you know, what else do I want to do to stay creative? And one of those was doing a complete conversion of this house into something that looks like an English fairy tale, you know, very much not like everybody else's house in the neighborhood. And come Halloween, which is coming obviously very shortly, we will have a, probably a 150 kids out there and uh, I do a full on performance with, you know, audio animatronic figures and lights and fog and all that, which again, I just love watching people react. I mean, I guess I've always been an entertainer. That's awesome. So every journey has a beginning. Now you were born in Los Angeles, correct? Yes. So what was it like to grow up there? I've got like a very funny background in that I kind of lived in a, well, the baby boomer um, world. Uh, yeah, I was born in 1950. And those were the times of like, okay, the war's over. You know, I think my dad bought this house in Culver City for like $9,000, you know, from the GI thing, Bill. He came to California uh, to go to USC to be a film student when there wasn't any film students. So he had a very short career um, because because of that. Nobody wanted to trust anybody that like learned film in school. That's not how you did it. But I grew up in Culver City with the back lots of MGM that were still there and the Hal Roach Studios. So I kind of inherited his dreams and took 
this eight millimeter movie camera that I got when I was seven. And me and my friends would shoot movies in the old back lots. So we didn't know what we were doing. So the movies didn't look very good. And of course they were on eight millimeters. So they were, you know, very funky, but we had incredible sets, like un unlike any other kids' movies. Uh, I've been wanting to make a story about that for years. And, uh, you know, basically finally Steven Spielberg is, you know, has done that on his life, you know, right. which is coming out. Um, and, you know, but that, that was it. It was that sort of fantasy of wanting to be a filmmaker. My dad was also a magician, so I did magic and I did shows. And as a kid, that money went to buying my film. And then the Beatles hit in uh, the early 60s. And suddenly all that went away, much to my father's upset. And I became a rock and roller, which I did all through the 60s. And uh, our band opened for The Doors, Iron Butterfly, Pink Floyd. I mean, all the bands that kind of came through Los Angeles, we played on the Sunset Strip and we were 15, 16 year old kids. So we, we shouldn't even been in there, but nobody cared in those days. So it was an amazing period to be, you know, able to go to the Monterey Pop Festival and see all these iconic, you know, Jimi Hendrix and, and obviously Janice and The Who and Simon and Garfunkel. And so a lot of influence from all of that. You know, here in Los Angeles, there was obviously clubs to play and places to to basically put together you know a show and i realized i needed to do something more than just imitate mick jagger or roger daltrey or james brown or any of those guys that i idolized so i went to paris and studied uh at the top of the 70s with marcel marceau and so i did the starving artist in paris came back with no money no girlfriend no band and started on the streets so that whole area of, of my life in the 20s was all about performing as a pantomimist in, on the streets. Met Woody Allen. He worked, uh, he had a film called um, Sleeper and had me work with him on the robot thing in there. Then I brought all my mind friends in to do the other robots as, as well as myself. And then it just sort of led to a career of doing, you know, monsters, humanoids, uh, I was Captain Star in Disney's The Black Hole with the, the mutant bear and John Frankenheimer's Prophecy. Very strange career of being the guy kind of inside the monster suit. And then I did a lot of comedy, uh, visual comedy bits and characters and stuff until finally I kind of went all the way back to my seven, eight-year-old dream of being a filmmaker and began to write scripts. And then that kind of was the beginning uh, at the top of 1980 that I filmed my first movie that I wrote and directed One Dark Night. And then my career kind of went off to there into making movies and kind of traveling around. And you know, I guess it's been like, what, 42, 43 films at this point, late films that have been, that I've done for either features, cable, network, whatever, and, and very, very unusual life. And yet, I loved it because every movie was different. You know, I got a chance to do all kinds of genres and stuff. And come 2010, I got a phone call. The band decided that we were going to try to get back together after 40 years. And I went right back into what I was doing then in the 60s as a rock and roller. Uh, so now I'm kind of going back and forth between yeah, rock, movies, and I also teach film uh, out at Chapman University, Dodge College. Uh, where we just had one of our um, alumni uh, have a movie that, that opened recently uh, called Smile. And um, 
I, we, we were all incredibly proud. Of course, it took him 10 years from graduation to when that happened, but he, he hung in. And for anybody out there who wants to be a filmmaker, that's the secret. Just keep, hold on to your dream and keep going because whether you want to be a rock and roll roller and you end up doing it in your 60s, as I did, or you get a chance, you know, to get out and finally get one of your movies made that you wanted to do for 10 years, bang, you know, it can happen. Just, you just don't give up. Uh, real quick, you mentioned the GI Bill. Was your father in the Second World War? Yes. Mm, okay. So you said that you were growing up making, you know, movie magic when you were younger. Who were your film idols growing up? Oh, well, uh, in those days, it really was not so much the directors. Um, although I did steal John Sturgis's, who, well, Magnificent Seven, some incredible films, his director's chair that was in the back lot um, because I saw a director on there and I knew that was important. But it was more that I loved the James Bond movies. So we were, you know, as kids trying to, you know, go that direction, the horror movies, of course. So dressed up as Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, any, any kind of thing that kind of dealt with, with that. And then we sort of did our own weird, we had no idea about this, but our own sort of psychological comedy dramas in which if we had issues with our parents, they somehow came out in comedy forms where one, one kid would be playing one of the parents and the other kid you know, was the kid. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of played out stuff where, now remember in the 50s, they could hit you. So we would get beatings. We would, you know, I went to Catholic school, so we had, pretty much public flogging sometimes from the nuns or from the Jesuit brothers when uh, I got into high school. So that whole idea of discipline and pain and rebellion all kind of wrapped up in that, that world, but we treated it with comedy, you know, and that was sort of like that way to escape it, you know, and not have to really deal with it. What did you learn screenwriting and, and directing? Did you, was it just something that self-taught? Did you, you said maybe you went to school for it? Well, here's what happened. My, you know, my, I wanted to go to uh, USC because that's where my father graduated from. And he was, he really, you know, was very much about, you know, if you want to do this, you've got to study it. Just like with magic, you've got to practice it and all that. I didn't have the grades, you know, to be able to get into U UCLA uh, or USC or any of those. So I audited classes and I found these schools, like there's a thing here in Los Angeles called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. And what they did was they brought in industry people to basically conduct the classes. So I knew something about writing. I mean, I write obviously by hand and write kind of in the screenplay form. But now I actually got to have a class with a guy named Sid Fields, who wrote um, Screenplay, which kind of became the industry's Bible. But we were the guinea pigs. Uh, we were the ones who was trying things out and experimenting. And then one day, you know, I hear Rod Serling is coming in to do a six-week uh, screenwriting class. So I got to study with Rod Serling. And all of this stuff, of course, you know, you learn the forms and the craft and all that, but then it gets down to one, the good idea, and second, hanging in there to get it executed. So I, you know, it, it was a much more difficult process to do a screenplay than it was doing sketch comedy, uh, which I was doing that for the mime group that I put together in the 70s. And Dick Van Dyke saw us performing, brought us on his show, Van Dyke and Company. And I started writing and directing each, you know, kind of pantomime episode that they would have or 
in front of the opening of the shows. So now I'm directing Sid Caesar, Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, um, Freddie Prince, Tommy Smothers. I mean, it was just amazing. And we, as the writing staff, were nominated for an Emmy, which is what got me into the Writers Guild and, of course, gave me some confidence that, hey, you know, I can do that. I should be able to, you know, do, do um, comedy feature films, which is what I wanted to do. But they were not looking for that in the 70s. They were looking for horror. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went, well, I love that, too. So that's when I decided to write One Dark Night which was based on an encounter I had in the catacombs of Paris for the first time feeling what supernatural fear felt like being down there with, you know, thousands and thousands of skulls and bones and kind of used that as a way of saying, okay, if I can take that fear and put it into a mausoleum modern day and put a young lady, in this case, Meg Tilly, you know, in, in the center of all that, um, maybe I have something, but it was, it was a time when slasher films were the thing and that's what everybody wanted and i didn't want to do that until about five years later <laughs> i had it i mean friday the 13th part six jason lives because i could put comedy in it and they like that and uh let me kind of bring back jason from the grave so your first film one dark night how hard for you was that first production hmm, ridiculously hard because i had no credits i had no proof that i was you know, proven in this capacity. I did comedy, obviously, sketch comedies and stuff, but not anything like this. So I put together a package. Um, I don't know if you remember or any of your uh, viewers, listeners remember uh, slide projectors, where we did a series of slides and that little carousel thing went around and projected and I had the music from um, Amityville that we'd play and we, and it sort of showed a whole progression of this girl having to sleep in a mausoleum and then Tom Berman who did all the special effects for like cat people and he also did the uh, mutated bear that I was in that costume so I got to know him and he made corpses for me that we could use so it was all about the presentation and then I assembled a team of people where I had the art director from Halloween I had a camera camera person from Brian De Palma's, uh, I can't remember which movie it was, when it, I think it was Carrie, anyway, but it was his credit. I got all these people who had big credits who wrote letters of intention saying that if Tom gets the money for this, you know, we'll do this. So I tried to make it seem like I was surrounded by all these, you know, experts. And it took about five years of taking it around and around and around. And since it was a bloodless horror movie and they were making, you know, very bloody slashers, nobody wanted until a group of Mormon investors needed to lose a million dollars. And it's like, can you be ready to go in three weeks? And it was like, yes, sir, I can. Because I had all my storyboards. I had everything scripted. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And wham, we went into it. We shot it. Um, I guess it was 28 days I think we had on that. The editor was putting together the master shots uh, on, on the piece, linking everything together. They took it, they put music and stuff behind it, but we didn't have all the dialogue. They showed it in the Bahamas to qualify for a tax shelter, proof they this was wasn't gonna work, and then took their, you know, their tax reduction and then gave us back the movie to finish it. So very bizarre way it finally happened. Uh, but, you know, everybody's path is a little different, you know, how you get that break. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, real quick, what was it like working with Adam West? Oh, he, <laughs> he was great. Nobody wanted to hire Adam, which was part of the reason I got pissed off. And I said, you know, are you kidding? No, I'm hiring Batman, you know, kind of thing. And what I didn't realize is that when I got Adam onto the set, you know, and he said, well, Tom, you know, I could start the line down here and then make it go up here because it's very interesting. When you make your voice go up and down, uh, Adam, mm, uh, no, no. No, I gotta have you just do. <laughs> He's like an attorney. He's straight, you know. And you know, okay. So I took all the ups and downs out of his voice, so I, you know, I could get Adam to sound like just a guy and not the way we all know him as Batman, which was great. And he was he completely understood and was and was very funny, wonderful guy. But then at a certain point, somebody else had taken over the movie in in post, and they added a bunch of additional stuff to it and brought Adam in for looping, you know, ADR, and they didn't sit on him. So he did this <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> movie. You will hear him at some time just being very normal sounding and other times he will be going down to an like that. But I loved Adam. How did the historic meeting with Frank Mancusa come about? That was one of those things where he had seen my one dark night and they were in trouble. They had just released part five, uh, Friday the 13th, part five, and they had every intention of ending it at part four because that was the final chapter, but it did so well that everybody said, well, you gotta do another one. So they unfortunately came up with this notion of, well, the next one, you think it's Jason, but in truth, it's an ambulance driver who's pissed off because the son was killed by Jason. So there was a big, you know, disgruntled reaction to that. And then at the end, the character Tommy Jarvis that was introduced in the part four, who was now grown up and guy named John Shepard played him. The last image was him with the hockey mask on. So now the audience is going, oh, it's not even going to be Jason in the next one. Ah, screw the So although it you know did well people came to see it it really the word of mouth was terrible mm -hmm. so normally these fridays came out every two years you know give people time to start to miss it and you know the vhs betas all those in those days you know would would get you know more audience and uh this time they they decided to go right into it uh after a year and so i I was called in, he saw the movie, he liked the fact that I was kind of doing gothic horror, and if I wanted to put something like that to, um, you know, a Friday, he would be great with that. And I said, and? What do you mean, and? What else besides that? He said, I don't care. Anything else you want to do with it, you know? So I went, and I had only seen part one, because again, it wasn't because I was against these things as much as I was so frustrated when I went out trying to sell any idea it had to be a slasher movie you know kid you know give me a forest give me some isolated area you know give me some girls you know, topless if possible and uh you know a guy with a knife and a, you know something a hood a mask or something over his face you got a picture and i was like no that's not making movies so i looked at all of them tried to find something that kind of you know connected them in some way with what the legend or the myth was and wrote this thing and said to myself, well, this is the sixth one. I can't take it seriously, can anybody? So I'm going to kind of satirize it at the same time, you know, trying to make it scary. Really wanted to make the, the kids likable so you didn't, you know, get upset when you, I, I mean, that you did get upset when you saw them 
get killed as opposed to some of the screenings of the movies I'd go see in those days that were horror movies. The audience was screaming, yeah, kill that bitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, weird territory here. Um, so I, you know, equally, you know, killed, I probably even killed more guys than girls in that thing um, to try to balance it out, put children in it, which they'd never had before. That So that looked like a, a chance that, oh no, he's not gonna kill a kid, is he? And then put in underwater fight, car chases, uh, you know, lightning, complete, you know, steal from Frankenstein and acknowledge that by having Karloff's market that you see in the background. So I just said, you know, I'm going to have tongue in cheek and I just hope the fans like it. And much to everybody's shock, critics actually said, well, it is what it is, but I, you got to... <laughs> You got to like something that looks right at its own audience and says some folks have a strange idea of entertainment and, you know, breaking the fourth wall. So I just, you know, went with that, hoping for the best, much to my shock still to this day is that this has become sort of the favorite for so many people. It was sort of like the entry drug into the Friday series for a certain generation that, you know, were introduced to it as kids. And of course, they relate it to the young kids in the movie also. And it's like, you know, it amazes me how it's usually always on the top three, if not one on people's favorite. And it was only my intention to try to make as good of a movie, horror movie as I could, not necessarily a slasher movie. So Jason had an agenda going after Tommy and killing anybody in his way. And Tommy had an agenda that he had to get Jason back into, you know, the water into where he first drowned. You know, the old poltergeist, you know, they moved the headstones, but they didn't move the bodies. In this case, you got to put the dead man back where he's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So all that, too, kind of gave it a little more of a cohesive thing. Nothing I was doing consciously. It's only over the years that sort of you, know, you start going, well, why did that work when so many other things you try doesn't? Uh, and it's it's that weird thing that you come come upon a mixing of the genres and it it, it, it worked. Years later, I was given a script called uh, Scary Movie. I turned it down because I thought it's too close to what I've already done. And of course, I eventually, after about six months, went back and said, what's going on with that movie? Ah, you know, you snooze, you lose. You know, went to Wes Craven. And of course, it was Scream. And, you know, so I missed a great opportunity there. But Kevin Williamson, who I met years later, said to me, you know, if it wasn't for your Friday the 13th, I don't know if I would have written Scary Movie Scream. And I went, okay, I, I guess that's you know, that's my acknowledgement that I did something that influenced the movie, but it's certainly not at the uh, mailbox getting any residual checks as the years have gone on. But, you know, that's, that's show business. So um, real fast, full disclosure, because you just mentioned it. Uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 was my first Jason film. Now, I'll mention the reason why in, in two questions from now, but the reason being, um, it was my first like real horror film. I was 14. I just never really gotten into the genre. It was, it's, and I still maintain it. It's my favorite of all of them. And you just, you know, you said that you get that a lot. It is, it's my favorite of all of them. I do have some questions real quick to ask about it though, was how long was the shoot? And did you ever get any pushback from during production? The only, let's see, the shoot was, if I recall, I think it was like 31 days somewhere in there, we had to go to Georgia and we were shooting under the title Aladdin Sane because Frank Mancuso Jr. always named these movies that were being shot because the union that was all trying to be, you know, running from the 
the Teamster Union and stuff, and you'd shoot them out of state, and you'd give it a different title. And that, you know, was a way, obviously, to keep the budget down and kind of have kind of our own little world. And we were all like in our late 20s, early 30s. So it was like a great group of people, so much so that here we are 36 late, you know, years later, you know, I'm going to these conventions as I'm going to one today. And here's all these people that we did this movie together, you know, people signing autographs, fans coming up who saw it originally, you know, 36 years ago, or just caught up to it recently, or they've got their kid dressed up as Jason, he's six years old. And like Frankenstein was to me, Jason is like their favorite monster. And it's just bizarre. And that, you know, I'm so close with all of these people. I mean, close in that we text and we Facebook each other's stuff. I mean, CJ who plays Jason and I just did a, a, a movie together um, uh, called uh, Vengeance 2 because we did Vengeance 1 and I had in my Friday, it was supposed to end with Jason's father. Um, and Frank, Frank Jr. said, I love this idea, but we can't end the movie with Jason's father because that same fan group is going to be pissed off thinking the next one's going to be, you know, Jay and dad. And we can't do that. So I took that's the only real thing that I had to remove, which was still in the script uh, period. But they let me go. I mean, Frank encouraged me on everything. Um, I, you know, since I wrote it, I could kind of change the dialogue when I wanted or would say to the actors, how would you say this? And if I had somebody like Tom Fridley, who I'm also going to see today again, um, you know, he improvised this thing with these young boys in the camp, you know, and I just, yeah, just make up something. And what you see in the movie is what he made up on the first take and bam, that was it. It cracked me up, you know, off we went. I did have a topless scene with Darcy DeMoss in the motorhome. Darcy turned to me and said, do you really need me to be topless? And I said, I, you, you, that's a problem. She goes, kind of, yeah. And I go, no, you know what? Probably it'll be funnier if you're not. And mom's naked. And, you know, so of course I got a lot of blowback from male fans who were going like, you know, why do we see her without her top? And so we just did a, a photograph together, Dar Darcy and I, in a camper with me on top, topless on top of her, you know, looking at the camera, you know, like this, you know, the, the send out to people saying, yeah, okay, the, you know, the, there's our, or swing back at you. But yeah, that it, it, it was weird because by taking that out made it somehow okay for certain people that it didn't have nudity in it. And yet, you know, we swore that the kills were, you know, fairly graphic from the standpoint of what I wanted to do is something a human couldn't imitate, like twist a head off, punch a heart out, bend somebody all backwards. I said, I don't want somebody to look at them and go, oh, I'm gonna go do that to my, you know, friend's mother. You know, it's like, and there were people that did. I mean, that, that not that the movies caused those things to actually, you know, motivate them to do it, but there's been times where people said, yeah, I did that because my mind, I was Freddie, or in my mind, I was Jason. You know, they, they needed to have basically a mask, you know, something else that they were pretending to be so they could, you know, execute that kind of stuff. So I tried to just do what I could that I thought, well, hopefully this is different and it'll work. And you know, much to my shock, uh, and I'll go to my grave with this, you know, how that all kind of turned around and kept the series going and all that is, is just amazing. Um, I've written two more now of recent, but nothing I can do with them till the rights, you know, get solved 100%. You know, they, yeah. the writer has some of them, 
Sean Cunningham, who was the original producer director, has some of them, and but the boys got to work out the money, and you know, so we can do more of these. So I mentioned earlier, Friday the 13th, part six was my first uh, film. The reason being is my father was a massive Alice Cooper fan. Uh -huh. And he's like, well, if Alice Cooper is in this, you know, involved in this movie, I've got to see it. So by default, you know, I sat with my dad and watched it. How did Alice's involvement come about? And did you have any experiences with him? And what was your opinion of the music video? Okay, here, here's a great story. Um, back in 60... 566 when my band was playing um the different clubs there was another band that we were on the same bill a few times um particularly at the at this club the cheetah out in uh, venice california and the group was called the naz and the lead singer was a guy named vincent and i would see him backstage and stuff as the same thing with morrison and anybody that was in bands you know i'd see him in the green room and stuff but alice or Vincent, or Balloon, I haven't. Uh, I would see at Frank Zappa's house in the canyon, in Laurel Canyon, where a lot of the, the freaks and geeks all kind of hung out. And I talked to him a few times, really nice guy from Texas. And I had no idea for years that Alice Cooper was Vincent because I had gotten into movies and kind of gotten away from the music. And then finally, when I realized it, it was like, oh my God, I had always heard that it was Frank Zappa who gave the band the name Alice Cooper because he thought it would be funny to have a group named after a girl and then eventually of course you know uh, Vincent took the name Alice Cooper and that that was it so here we cut to 1980 86 uh and Frank uh, and I was putting the movie together and of course I had ACDC and Metallica and all these different bands, you know, as the soundtrack, which I knew we couldn't have, but I put it in there anyway. And I had, you know, Alice's, a couple Alice songs in there. And Frank Jr. came to me and he said, you know, would you like Alice to write a song for the movie? I said, you kidding me? He would? He goes, yeah, his management got a hold of me and said, uh, they knew it was a Friday. Alice is a huge Friday fan. So, you know, and I said, God, yeah, yeah. And please tell him, you know who i am and stuff um and you know we've got one version of you know man behind the mask which i loved a very hard rocker and all that and then the next thing i know no they're re-recording it they're going to make it more 80s they're going to put a synth into it and stuff it's like mm, it's really yeah, yeah so we got that version and it's sort of like i still like the other one well too bad this, this is the one <laughs> record label wants to go with and it's like okay well as time has gone on of course i've you know come to love you know the way the song is and also that when my band started performing you know 10 years ago we started doing man behind the mask ourselves you know and since i can kind of do that you know you're with your baby you know kind of voice i loved singing it and yeah here we are 36 years later i have not been face to face with alice at all you know i want to do the music video the record company said no we already have somebody that we use uh from my standpoint i didn't like the video i just thought it, it you know it was okay it was great to have the clips of the movies in there alice is always great to watch but just i don't know just the whole way it was kind of shot and done i just wanted to see something just a little more classy for it but again it's like anything else it's nostalgic now it the, everybody looks appropriate for that period the way they dressed and things so you know it's like what are you going to say i mean nostalgia wins over everything you know i saw that the first time on mtv when i was in 
So, you know, it is what it is. But one of these days, and one fan told me that he, he was getting Alice's autograph and he mentioned, you know, that I was doing the song and stuff. And he said, yeah, Tom and I ought to do the song together one time. So I'm waiting for that. I mean, that's my, you know, bucket list item. Probably number one is to be able to, you know, get on stage and actually do this at some point. So I keep going, you know, going to these conventions. One of these times, you know, the two of us will be at the same place at the same time. Maybe we can, you know, work mm-hmm. something out. That's awesome. You know, I have the 12 inch uh, single with him, you know, on the cover, he's holding the mask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's yeah, one of my, fa- my dad left that to me and this, you know, when he bequeathed it to me and it's one of my favorite, you know, LPs and what have you. So. Now, anyway. that, I think, uh, Derek, has, uh, that whole thing about these things that most people go, you like that. And it's like, no, it's stuff. Like if your father liked it, my dad took me to go see Peter Lorre in his coffin. I was 12. My yeah. mother would kill him. But he had done a movie with Peter Lorre. He knew he was laying in state. He knew I loved horror movies. And he took me. And some people said, that is awful weird. But I loved it. And it was something that we bonded with, is those, those kinds of things. He took me to my first you know, James Bond movie. And you know, he loved Ursula Andress. I love James Bond. You know? and it, but it was, a, it was a place for the two of us to kind of you know, love these things. Same thing with Marilyn Monroe. He, idolized Marilyn. So I grew up loving Marilyn. I mean, you know, so, it, you know, it happens, obviously, guys and their moms or and a lot of, you know, things are either very hard with father son things sometimes if you didn't live up to their expectations, of, you know, what they wanted for you or whatever. But when they have these moments and they get, you know, passed on and it's, I mean, and I meet people like this constantly at these conventions. Uh, even even their grandmothers would be taking them to these movies. And it's like, yeah, it's how me and my grandma talked about stuff or wrestling. My grandma loved wrestling. We'd go to these. That's to me a really wonderful side of our humanity. You know, it's these, these things that to some people are like, please. And then for other people, this was the bond, you know, that got us together. And then we talk about other things. That's awesome. What do you remember from the release and the premiere of part six? The best thing was going to theaters all around Los Angeles, just going and seeing the lines and going in and hearing the audience screaming and yelling. And then one of the highlights was going to a a midnight screening out in Westwood and all the Paramount executives were there, you know, Frank's father, you know, ran Paramount and, you know, all his, you know, entourage. And they're all just standing there going to me, you know, and I mean, that was one of those oh my God, you know, it worked. And yet it did not make the numbers, you know, that they were all hoping it didn't, it came in number two instead of number one, because somebody didn't think about the fact that Aliens was going to be as big as it was. And it opened the weekend before. And of course, all the people that are going, you know, you got to go see this. No, let's go see Friday. Oh, fuck Friday, man. You see the last one? It's going to be bullshit. No, come on. You got to, I got to think you see Aliens. So that, you know, definitely hurt the box office that first week. And of course, it just goes kind of down from there with horror movies. So they open the next week, they go down 40, 45%. Some, when they go down to 60, it's like, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem because it's like now the word of mouth wasn't so good. But I've been tracking this, obviously, for 50 years now since I've been, you know, kind of involved in that wonderful world of horror and making movies and what do people want to see and, you know, what what becomes a good word of mouth movie. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview 
with director Tom McLaughlin. May I suggest you take this time to refresh the drink, take some super long, nice deep breaths, you know, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Give a couple of friends of my show your attention, and we will be right back. It's time to feel the rage. Join us on Film Rage, where we talk movies, current releases, coming attractions, streaming, and classic films as well. Directors and actors, beware as you cannot hide from the rage. My name is Bryce, and I'm part of the Film Rage crew, which also includes Jim. Hey, hey. And Murray. Yo. Why is it you always talk? All the time. I can't understand I why. This, this, is, this is the Merman, the voice of reason. These two can't agree on anything most of the time. Some movies are Mondo, some are just Every week, something is going to make us rage. Join us every Wednesday and feel the rage. I want to be as high as these billionaires in space. Sell out the sky like these billionaires in space. Hi, this is Dominic Canarella. I'm Eric McCoy. And I'm Max Meislish. We are Them Fantasies. Right now, you're listening to our brand new single, Billionaires. Billionaires is about how absurd it is that the mega rich are going to space as if there's nothing left for them here on Earth. Nowhere else to go but up, right? You can listen to Billionaires now on all streaming platforms and be sure to check out our brand new music video on our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere on social media at them underscore fantasies. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Karen Stolzno's new book, Fisher's Ghost and Other Stories, is out now, just in time for Halloween. From Monster Talk's co-host comes this anthology of supernatural short fiction. The characters within these pages include lovelorn ghosts, restless spirits, deceptive demons, and deeply flawed humans. Their tales all told with a twist. These unsettling stories are guaranteed to give you nightmares. Fisher's Ghost and Other Stories is available for ebook and in paperback from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online booksellers. Hi, it's Michelle Fabre, and you can hear my new single, Last Chance for Love, on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Last chance for love, last chance for love, can we make it? Just tell me so. Last chance for love, last chance for love, come on, let's take it or let it go. That's Serena over there. And that's Naomi, and we are the hosts of Weird Mythic Podcast. Yes, we are. Our show, Weird Mythic, covers stories about cryptids, which is what brought us together to create the show. But we also like to talk about anything paranormal and strange that happens in the world. 
We post episodes every Sunday on different topics, and we would love to have more listeners. We're on all podcast platforms, and you can find us on all social media sites as well. Give us a listen, send us some personal stories to share on the show, and we will love you forever. Yes, we will. We would love some personal stories, some cryptid encounters, and we hope that you listen and tune into the show. You can listen to Weird Mythic Podcasts wherever you get your podcast fix. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 97 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with one of the true masters of horror, writer and film director, Tom McLaughlin. How involved were you in the Friday the 13th video game? I It was pretty much almost done, done. Um, and I got a call from Wes Kelter, I think, and uh, who was one of the creators. And he said that they wanted to do these sort of what do they call it? Not Easter eggs. It's it's like where you you win, you get a certain amount of points, and then you get access to a, a tape. And these were the tapes of Pamela Voorhees on the night while that Jason drowned, and the police were still out, you know, looking through the you know what do you call it, um, searching the bottom of the lake um, for his body. And the police are interviewing Pamela about the situation. And, you know, it was sort of meant, I, the way, the way I wrote it was like a radio play. You know, you just heard her, you heard the cops. I put in the sound of like an old funky microphone being moved around and this squeaking of the wheels of the tape, you know, crickets outside the window. I mean, so it all had all these elements in it. And uh, they really loved it and decided to break it up into sections that people would find. And then eventually you would have you know, the complete tape. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go up and direct it, which I wished I had, because kind of what happened was, is they had the actress playing Pamela, who was incredible, sounded so much like her, and then two other actors right at a microphone doing it like a radio play, and it just had a stiffness to it, and it sounded to me like it was being read. It didn't have the old ambiance that I was hoping for, and the sense that we were they were recording on a very bad mic, something from you know, 1957. And so I wasn't pleased production wise with it. But the one thing I wanted to get in there because of my Jason's father thing was that, you know, Elias Voorhees was not his father. Elias was the, you know, was the person that she was married to, but someone else was actually Jason's father. And I kind of wanted to throw that out into the mythology. Um, And, you know, for most people now, Elias Voorhees and with CJ playing him in the Vengeance, you know, fan films, you know, basically is a, is a great, you know, Elias, you know, he does have the long hair that I wanted you know, him to have as opposed to in the comic books where he's, you know, kind of a, like a 
factory worker, butch, muscle man, short hair and stuff, and uh, who Pamela kills. But it's, you know, for me, it, it's like that, that whole thing of, you know, the, the game was amazing. They, they got Tom Matthews to come in and do the character and stuff, and that that got shut down. But at the time they were doing it, I kept saying, really, Paramount isn't like sitting there going, come on, boys, give me some of that. It's like, no, they just left. Well, eventually, the lawsuit, the amount of money they were making, boom, the doors closed. And, you know, that was kind of it on the game, unless something changes, you know, once these whole rights issues get resolved. One of my all-time favorite shots in film, in all films, is that final shot of uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, where he's underwater, and you see him just, in mo like, in station, you know, mode. He's not he's not moving or anything, but they close it on the mask, and his eye is moving. Yeah. I think I think that, honestly, guys, one of the coolest shots in any movie I've ever seen in my life. The word Great. of a lie. Great. You know, it's like every so often, you know, I'll see something online. I'll go, oh, I want to I want to see that. And, you know, I'll, I'll send away and I'll pay the money for it. And, you know, here he is. <laughs> underwater. Or I don't know what they whether they're charging 20 bucks or something. And I'm going, wait a minute. You know, he's not going to float. You know, where's the where's the chain? You know, and then they had knives for him and stuff. And I go, well, somebody's making money. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, not me. I saw I saw one where they're in the fish tank. I, I have seen that oh, before. Yeah. But the one, the best ones, the, the 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 ones that are under actually a lake, and they build a whole oh, stone wow. of him and paint it and stuff, and put it way down there. So only if you're a diver can you go down and see this. And of course, it's all full of you know algae and moss and stuff, right. which I put into this you know the the sequel that that I've written called Jason Never Dies, and it takes place literally 13 years later, 1999. And it's in the winter with snow and, I mean, but heavy snow, like John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, these people are, you know, snowed in and he comes up through that ice in a way that we've never quite seen before. It's very expensive, you know, to say the least to do what I wanted to do. So it couldn't be a fan film, but it's uh, something that's kind of, if you saw my Jason, you know, lives, you will see there is a connection to there in a, one of the moments that happens in the movie that I get asked about a lot. And I decided that, okay, I'm gonna just kind of show you what, what that was setting up. And then just, I wanted to do a, a Jason movie where every character in the movie is female, but him. Mm -hmm. Oh, these are the ladies coming back and this is not me trying to be politically correct. It's a Catholic nun and basically 10, kick-ass badass sinner girls out of high school who are there on a spiritual retreat uh over the thanksgiving weekend and guess who's coming to dinner <laughs> you know so it's um you know I, I again i did not want to do what i did in jason lives but i also wanted to do something that's like we haven't seen it like that and still it's crystal lake you know i'm not going off to you know pluto or you know phoenix arizona or you know he stays where he stays and he does what he does and this time as i said the circumstances are different being you know in the winter and with all females bruce campbell is very well known on record that he does not like to do big commercial films he prefers to do small independent films Based on that, do you do you follow the same thing? Are you want to do big commercial, you know, tentpole films? Would you rather do small budget stuff? And also, uh, what is your current opinion on horror films in this modern era? 
Uh, well, let me answer the last one first. There's some great stuff this year since COVID that is coming out. I mean, literally, if not week after week, it's like week off, and then the next week there's something. Just some amazingly creative, audience-pleasing, you know, movies from us horror guys. We're going, it's back again. Now, it's very cyclical. I mean, there's times where, you know, you think, okay, I'm going to write a horror movie and it's going to work and nobody wants it because the market had gotten, you know, glutted too many. Every time there's a big success, Monday morning, every office, production office in this city is going, you know, we got some kind, can we turn something into a horror movie that we have? Gone, guys, you know. And that was the same thing when I was working in television. Whatever did well on CBS, NBC, or ABC on the weekend, Monday morning, you know, we got to do a Western. A Western? Yeah, don't we have one? No, we threw all those out. We'll get them back. You know, it's like, it, it, it's all about, you know, playing to whatever the trend is or whatever was just successful. And I was very fortunate to have Frank Capra uh, as my mentor. And Frank was somebody that I could write or call and ask him questions and, you know, look at the script like Date with an Angel. You know, he had a lot of input and he gave me an incredible quote for the movie, which wasn't used, unfortunately, because Dino De Laurentiis didn't think anybody knew who Frank Capra was. But um, he said, don't follow trends. You know, whatever you're doing, there's a hundred thousand people also doing it at the same time. And by the time you get yours done, it's over. You know, go with your gut, go with your heart. And a lot of people have been writing stuff, you know, through the, you know, COVID and, and before, and basically being told, as we've been told for this past month, if you're not Spider-Man, if you're not a Marvel, DC, whatever, forget it. You're never going to get into the theater. Those days are over. Shutter. Think about Shutter. Make it cheap. Make it fast. Get it in. Get it out. You want to make a movie? That's how you do it. All that's being thrown out the window now because these movies by, you know, I mean, a perfect example is Parker Finn doing Smile. I mean, he made it as a short film. They liked the short. You know, they said, do you have a feature version? He wrote a film for it. You know, it, it Paramount saw it. It was supposed to go on Paramount Plus, you know, streaming. The president saw it. They tested it. They saw how audiences reacted. They went, nope, 3,000 theaters, you know, it's going into. And, you know, this has been happening. Pearl, you know, coming right after X, which also, you know, to me was great. Um, Barbarians was great. I mean, there's been low budget things that are hearkening back to certainly my days in the 70s and 80s. And for me, I just want to get in there and see these audiences react. You know, and, and we've gotten so passive in the theater, you know, and that's from all the, obviously all this television watching where you just sit there by yourself or with a friend or whatever. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know, it's like Beavis and Butthead kind of, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and to me, you know, I grew up in an age where People were up out of their seats, screaming at the screen. The first screening of Halloween that I saw, popcorn was flying in the air because, you know, guys, girlfriends were screaming and jumping. And I mean, it was like a party, you know, and as it was when My Friday came out and so many of these other movies. And I would put things into the movies so that the audience would react. You know, the American Express card, there was always somebody that said, don't leave home without it. Everybody would laugh. You know, and it was like they thought they were so clever. They just stepped right into a setup and I didn't care. It was great to hear the audience participate in the film. I would love to see that come back. You know, I'd love to see people open up and get into it. 
That being said, what is your opinion on streaming services for like films and stuff like that, where they're actually just skipping the traditional, you know, 3000 screens or such? Like anybody else, shit, you know, if I don't have to go anywhere and pay, I mean, they were charging out here. I don't know where you are, but you know, they were charging at the AMC out here, $29 to see the new Spider-Man, you know, and that's okay. Popcorn, probably another 20 bucks with drinks and things, plus parking. And God forbid you are a family guy that has a kid and you have to get a babysitter. So you have dumped well over $100 or more to go see something. And if it sucks, boy, are you mad, you know? <laughs> that was Friday pay, you know, just went out to some piece of shit, you know, that you wished you could have just stayed at home and seen it. So there are certain things that obviously the streaming is great for, but there is to me still always gonna be that group of people that wanna see thing, things in a the theater, wanna see them as a event, as an experience with a group. You know, I hated the idea that that was gonna die. I hated that the, the last Halloween, you know, was coming out on both streaming and, and theaters because it allowed people to make a choice to me, it's like, no, you want to see it right away? You know, you got a hard on for this stuff. Go and see it the way it's supposed to be in a theater with people. Then after two weeks, if you want to wait, guess what? It'll be on streaming. And there'll always be that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember in the days when beta and VHS and stuff, you know, it was coming out and there would be trailers for movies. And this, again, was the days when people spoke. Um, <laughs> and the, the, Somebody would always go, rent it, rent it. You know, basically, I, I ain't coming for it, but I'll rent it at block, Blockbuster. Yeah. So, you know, now it's like, you know, stream it. Uh, it's, it's why go? But I don't think people remember, you know, and because COVID too, it erased a lot of that. Oh, that was really the fun thing. And if the prices keep going up, it's going to be really hard. But a lot of the theaters, um, the Regal change, chain that started great guns, few months back, you know, they're going under. Uh, AMC is also, you know, gone really, I don't know how many billions in debt, but they're trying to keep going. It's just very, very difficult um, with the costs of all that. So you know, I understand it from both business sides and stuff. So the key really does get back to exactly what's happening now. Do something low budget, see that it works, let them test it, let them go. Yeah, people love this. Build a campaign, you know, of some sort. They're going to be more expensive ultimately, but if the word of mouth takes off and if people come and then they, you know, buy it, rent it, you know, whatever on, on, on streaming, you know, you get double the box office. So, you know, it can benefit both ways, but I, I certainly don't want to see us lose that, that theater experience. Fair enough. Um, who are people in the film industry currently working that you would just, you know, absolutely die to work with? Ooh. God, Guillermo, you know, I just love his stuff. And he's one of the sweetest men in the world. Um, Mick Garris put together this group called the uh, Masters of Horror. And we have these dinners together. And you sit there at a table with John Carpenter and Rob Zombie and all the guys coming up the, with the paranormal movies or the, uh, you know, Quentin was there a number of times. I mean, just all these people. And, you know, Guillermo is one of those kind of guys that you just, love instantly who hugs you when he meets you you know he would be you know just just great um 
God, there's so many. Um, you know, Mick Garris and I started off together, you know, doing things, creating stuff together. That was great fun. And maybe one of these days we'll do do that again together. Um, the, uh, that just went right out of my mind. Um, the writer-director of uh, The Haunting of Hill House um, that was on cable, and uh, he also did the uh, sequel to uh, The Shining. Mm -hmm. uh, what's his name? I should know this. He's a fellow Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Flanagan, there you go. Yeah. He I met at a Fangoria convention, and um, Midnight Mass that he had done, uh, I really related to. You know, he he would be somebody that I just think is brilliant in terms of what he has done to bring back what is really scary, you know, in horror to me. I'm really excited to see this fall of the House of Usher that he did um, that's coming out. He's obviously in a wonderful position with Netflix that pretty much anything he wants to do, you know, they'll do. So, you know, he, he's somebody when I met him, I went, you know, I feel very kindred spirits with him. But who knows if something like that, you know, would happen. But there are so many actors um, in particular uh, that I would, you know, love to work with that, that are both up and comers or people that have been around, you know, for a long time. Um, with this other uh, writer, James Sweet, we did uh, the, the diaries, the diary of Pamela Voorhees. And I want to find an actress to play young Pamela because she was, you know, impregnated at 16, had Jason at 16 in 1946. And this mother-son story that goes for 10 years until they get to Crystal Lake where she gets a job as a cook. To me, there is an incredible story of watching a woman go from a basically sociopath type of behavior, mental behavior, to total psychopath. Um, and she's raising this little boy who doesn't speak, is mentally challenged, and is deformed. And in a society that didn't understand, you know, mental illness, doesn't understand why he looks like that and why he's out amongst people disgusting us. And she becomes the mother of the year. You know, her life is devoted to protecting this child to the point that a mother kills for things that she loves. And it is basically a serial killer movie set in the late 40s to through the 50s, who show what shows basically how Pamela was doing what she did in part one and why Jason has become what he's become because of what he grew up learning from her. And that requires to me an actress that is going to get up there, you know, very much uh, like Mia Goth did, did with Pearl, if you've seen Pearl, you know, uh, what Nurse Charlotte... Fletcher. Uh, yeah. Uh, Louise Fletcher was just amazing. Uh, I got to do two movies, three movies with her. You know, love that lady. But yeah, uh, you know, Charlize and Monster, there's been so many actresses that you, you, you basically understand why they're doing what they're doing but it's horrible you know i always point to anthony hopkins hannibal lecter mm -hmm. you know the audience was cheering when he walked away and this is a very twisted man but he <laughs> love him you know and what he was going to go do is go after somebody we did not like which was right. fun and that's kind of the way we approached doing this this movie with pamela um, and and young jason 
Uh, we basically have one place we can take it, and that's the Victor Miller who created those characters. And, you know, we're in this point now where we have it, we're just waiting for that okay for him, you know, to be able to take a look at it. And the people obviously that are part of his camp, whether he's already got one that, that he's written himself or somebody else has that's a remake of the original or something like this, we don't know yet. So, but we have it, we're ready. We've got illustrations. I've come up with stuff that people are going to find really cool about the first time she finds something to cover his face with and what it is. And um, it's creepy. I mean, it, it, Pearl, if you thought Pearl was creepy, this even goes further because mother and son. I bet you Netflix will buy that. Ne I, it just screams like Netflix will buy that. I 100% agree. I think so. I mean, that's the way we're going with it. It's like, okay. I said, let's just do this as like a, an ex extended movie, like six, eight, you know, episodes. Or if we want to go Bates Motel with it, that also can happen because there's a lot of stuff that, you know, they're they're on the move. They have to. After the murders, they got to go someplace else. And in those times, and I grew up in those times, everybody was suspect of being somehow involved with the Communist Party. You know, there was all those, 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 you know, people riding out people, you know, the, the mm -hmm. we saw on TV, the Russians were going to drop a bomb on us, not unlike today, where we don't know what's going to happen out of all this stuff with Putin. That in those days, we were, we lived in this fear, we built bomb shelters, we, as kids, we dived under, as soon as they went drop and cover, we went under the school desks and did this. It was a scary period, you know, you and most people think, well, after the war, happy days are here again and stuff. No, it, we, there was a lot that was promised that didn't happen. And there was a lot more fear that went on. And I thought putting them into that world and how kind of strange they are, you know, should really create something that's very, very unique. And of course, I'm sitting here mouthing off about something that, yes, we have, you know, protected and, you know, registered and all that. But I don't own young <laughs> And I don't own, own Pamela. Um, so until, you know, Victor Miller agrees, you know, to it, you know, there's, there's nothing we can do with it. And I certainly don't want to go and do something that's not that. It's just like, well, we'll do a movie and it's really not them. It's something else. It's, you know, it's just not the same, I think, for an audience to actually see how Jason was raised could be fascinating and, and scary. Um. When I told uh, my listeners that you're going to be on the show, I asked them to submit some questions and most of them we've already covered, but there is one question that I want to ask you is being a master of horror. What is the scariest movie you've ever seen? Exorcist. Again, guys, it's because if you saw this in the theater, if you saw it the first you know, week when people knew this was going to be scary, they read the book, they knew this was going to have something that was going to shake them up. They had no idea. It, what was going to happen. And I'm telling you, Derek, they, there was an ambulance parked outside. Part of it was publicity, but lots of times it was used. Friedkin and Blatty were passing out coffee to the lines, you know, grinning from ear to ear. At the end of that movie, people froze in their seats or stood up and put their coat on and then stopped. They just kept staring at the screen, like <laughs> half a coat on men running up the aisles with their hands over their face so they didn't throw up in the aisle. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the needle scenes, you know, the bone, again, grown men passing out, you know, from seeing that. 
the people just going crazy. People afterwards, as you go into the lobby, sitting there, you know, with a nurse, you know, and, and uh, you know, getting their blood pressure taken. I mean, it fucked up people. It sent people to church. I was in hog heaven. I went, oh my God, how did they do this? Why did this work the way it worked? And boy, I studied everything I could on that movie. Uh, and to the point that when I was offered many years later to do the prequel uh, for Morgan Creek, you know, who owned it, and it was basically the story of Father Marin's first encounter, you know, in the 40s with the demon, I lobbied so hard to get that, and they wanted the guys who did Blair Witch, but I had such enthusiasm in the room, I got the job, and I was on that movie for almost two years, you know, trying to get the script right, trying to find the right writer, you know, doing everything I could, and I met with Blatty, and I promised him if I didn't think this was going to, I'm never going to top The Exorcist, that's it, period, but the third movie that Blatty did, uh, based on Legion, his book Legion, that to me had so many great things with, with the George Scott character and the things that were in there. I said, if I can at least get there, I'll be happy. And he goes, I would be too. But I'm telling you, Tom, if this thing, if I don't like it, I'm going to go on every talk show, tear you down, tear the movie down. My hand to God, Bill, no. I'm and I, that's exactly what happened when the script finally came in. I went, this is my conversation with Satan. This, is, this doesn't work. This is just too talky. And I had waited forever for this, this writer thinking that this was gonna be the thing. And so I walked away, John Frankenheimer came on, he died a year into it, passed it on um, to um, uh, Paul Schrader, who shot the script that I turned down. He turned in his director's cut, he was fired. They then got Rennie Harlan to basically add footage to it to make it scarier. Rennie reshot the entire movie with the same cast and stuff. So now this little movie I was going to do for 18 million, now they've spent 40 million twice, 80 million. I wasn't going to get a payday until it broke 50 million at the box office. It got as far as 48, according to the Warner Brothers accountants. So that was that. Was that. But if it wasn't for The Exorcist having that kind of impact, you know, I wouldn't have, you know, lobbied and gone so so much into that. I know it could kill my career if it's not good, but I, I'm not going to let it not be good. So another Hollywood story told with a violin this thing. <laughs> As we begin to wind down this interview, what is the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Facebook. I think I still, I, I keep, you know, taking away people that I think that either they're, you know, they're not, as positive about things <laughs> i'm always trying to find the positive thing to be but yeah at uh tommy mclaughlin on on facebook um i've also got um the tom is it yeah tommy mclaughlin.com you know i put things on the band the sloths uh like the little furry animals with the the, the, the claws uh you can hear some of the music but basically if you go on youtube and put me in there is so many like interviews, there's music videos that we've done, all, all kinds of stuff that's on there. And uh, Vengeance uh, is out now, or Vengeance 2 is out that you can see where I, you know, get to, you know, re relive my desire to be an actor and, and get to work with CJ Graham in these scenes and um, Rob Most, which we had a ball shooting the comedy scenes and that. So, you know, I just keep doing as many things as I can because I've, got a crypt 
that I've had now for 10 years at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery where I did One Dark Night. Um, and I have inf information of what to do once I'm inside of that thing, but I'm not getting in there till 2050. So I've got a lot of things that are on my agenda that I got to get done before that. Um, so it's, to me, it's all about, you know, we're here to hopefully leave behind stuff that other people go, I'm glad he did that, you know, or things today that it's like, if I can help somebody open the door, do something, it's to me, it's, you know, it's a purpose-driven life. You've got to have some purpose, whatever that is, you know, that, that hopefully benefits other people in something that they love whether it's horror or whether it's doing romantic comedy, it doesn't matter as long as people go, thank you. I, that, I really enjoyed that. That's awesome. So my final question is also my favorite. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of earth? Do not give up your dreams. You don't know when they're going to happen. You may start on a course and you think, at a certain point, why am I doing this? I'm not as good as that person that I idolized and I, I, I'm just gonna do something else. And you become bitter and you shut down and you become sarcastic about other people's successes and things because you're in pain, you know? People turn to drink, people turn to drugs, people turn to some sort of aberrant, aberrant behavior because it's like self-punishment. And the important thing, guys, is if you still have that in you, trust, if you just keep putting something towards that, if you write, if you paint, if you do music, whatever, keep finding a way to do it in just small steps and keep letting people know it's out there, which you can do now with the internet. And someplace, sometime, you know, kismet happens and it will happen. But if you give up, it won't. But if you can keep living in that belief that this dream, I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. As I said, I was 61 before I got back on stage and got the rock and roll again. And it was better than when I was 16, you know, and the same thing with, you know, making movies. I wanted to be, you know, off and running at 26, like Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, you know, 31. Finally, I got to do this thing for Mormon investors. Doesn't matter. It happened in a way that I never expected or could have planned, you know. So whatever it is, guys, just don't give up your dreams. You know, keep keep that light burning. Mm. Sir, this has been um, hands down probably one of the greatest honors I've been doing since the show. And I've had a lot of great guests on my show. This is one of those moments I wish my dad was still here to see because uh, that yeah. time when he took me to see this movie, he would have been just chuffed to bits that we're doing this. So thank, thank you. Thank you again for doing it. My pleasure. I, I had a great time talking with you and best of luck on everything and Thank happy to everybody out there. <laughs> and just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 97. I want to thank Tom for taking the time to come on the show. He is incredibly busy and taking the time out of his schedule to speak with me was just an absolute, just delight. What a great man. And I, Hope down the line we can talk to him again. A few housekeeping items before we close out this episode, as you just heard. This was episode 97, and we are now just a few shows away from the big centennial episode. Folks, I cannot wait to tell you who it is, but I can't right now. Believe me, it's going to be a great episode, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, real quick, though, I do want to address a concern that I've been getting a lot of messages and tweets about 
there has been a lot of talk about my voice changing, and I want to simply address that by saying, yes, my voice has been going through some changes. I was diagnosed with asthma a few months ago. Now, I never had asthma in my life, but I was diagnosed with asthma a few months ago, and I am learning how to speak in long sentences again without choking for air. So yes, I am aware my voice has lost a bit of its thunder, if you want to call it that, but I am doing what I need to, such as using an inhaler before interviews or recording any dialogue for the show. And again, Duval Nation, you're so sweet. Thanks to all of you for the concern. Uh, real quick, have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have a carefully curated collection of t-shirts put together by myself and Mrs. Duval. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be magically taken to our store on TeePublic. And I want to thank TeePublic again for being such great partners with us. On behalf of the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, have a very happy Halloween. And remember, turn those lights low, get some popcorn, and watch the scariest film that you can handle tonight. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website. DerekDuvallShow.com to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duvall Show.